my big learning is who said the body was going to be in charge? <laughs> who, who, who said that? Who made that one up? <laughs> I always thought my head was in charge and then I understood my heart. But not only is the body in charge, it turns out the body is very smart. Mm-hmm. The body is very, very smart. And I did not understand that the body was very smart. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just delighted to welcome Marge Schiller to the My Fourth Act podcast. Marge is an an appreciative inquiry thought leader and professional grandmother. She has been an appreciative inquiry practitioner, consultant, collaborator, and writer for over 30 years with a passion for intergenerational learning partnerships. Marge is the co-author of two books, Appreciative Leaders and the Eye of the Beholder, and Stan and the Four Fantastic Powers, the first appreciative inquiry children's book, which she co-wrote with her grandchildren, Sarah and Max Schiller. When Marge and I first met, Marge was 76 years old and well into her fourth act. Marge is now 83. As part of our chat today, I plan to explore with Marge what stays the same, at what changes, what goes away, and what emerges on this leg of the journey. Welcome, Marge. Hello. (laughs) It is wonderful to have this conversation with somebody who I consider a friend. Before we go to the now, the 76 to 83 part of the leg, I start every podcast with the same question, which is who, Marge, did you? want to be or think you wanted to be when you were a young girl or a teenager? Absolutely nobody. I ride with the tide and I roll with the punches. And if there were one thing that I would say has served me well, but is changing, is saying, why not? And I only remember one problem with that. I've said, okay, fine. Why not? I'll try it over and over and over. And it has almost always worked out, except when I had a boss who said, you know, I've given this to a lot of people and they've not been able to do it. Would you like to try? I said, why not? I came back and you know what? I said, well, (laughs) nobody else could do it and I can't do it either. Here, I, I heard your answer, but I want to push a little harder. All right. I feel like you're giving me the adult perspective on a childhood question. And and what interests me is, did mom and dad ever ask you, who do you want to be? Not really. And I want to go back to you use the word adult. I'm going to use another word. I'm going to say a person with learning differences. So it was unclear to me whether I was really smart or stupid, 
because there's stuff that I got and stuff that I didn't Mm -hmm. get. I was out of school when I was in part of kindergarten and the first grade. Yeah. So it wasn't quite clear. Should I have been held back? What was going on? Mm -hmm. And it was not until my mid-60s that I found out that I have ADD and dyslexia. So the business of I want to be a something, um, I can tell you things I didn't want to be. At one point, I thought I wanted to be an artist, and I did commercial art and Mm -hmm. advertising, and I was only pretty good. I wasn't terrific. So I would say I might have spent more time, the old Michelangelo, there's there's a statue in there. I think I spent more time figuring out things I didn't want to do. Yeah. One basic question that most of us get asked, which is, do you want to go to college? What do you want to study? Uh, I had a brother who didn't go to college because he wasn't deemed academically gifted enough. That's part of my family story. Thomas isn't smart enough to go to college. And then when you go to college, what do you study? Do you do something practical that's going to be a good job? Or is there some passion you follow? Did you go to school after high school? Did you study? What did you study, Marge? All right. After high school, I spent one semester at Clark University. Uh Why Clark University? Because my best friend in the world was Ann Maslow, whose father was Abraham Maslow. Cool. At one point, I thought, well, I really like Dr. Maslow. Maybe I want to be a psychologist. Mm -hmm. I didn't like college. I didn't like Clark. I didn't like the experience. And I got married. <laughs> now, what I was going to do is I was going to go to Columbia. Yeah. But I, and Simon said, if you go to New York, we can't, we, we're not going to get married. And I said, oh, okay, let's get married. And that was another why not. But my university experience has to do when I was director of education for the Massachusetts State Senate. And Mm -hmm. I was teaching both at Radcliffe and at Harvard at the Kennedy Institute. I never told anyone I had a degree, but I never told anyone I didn't. So at one point, I don't even remember how it started, but I applied to a master's program at Harvard University and they accepted me Mm because they can accept anybody they want. Since you brought up education, and I know that part of your professional career, you spent some time in government, you spent some time in business, you spent some time in education. Please give our listeners a snapshot around something that you just loved or love about being in education, but also to everything wonderful, there's often a dark side. What is something about education that just as somebody who has taught and study that drives you crazy. Can you give us a snapshot of each? Well, I love learning. I adore learning. Education, not so much. (laughs) My experience um, in higher education was I went on to a graduate school learning faculty, and I was blown away. There was only one other woman in the department, (laughs) she said to me, these guys don't play nice. And I said, hey, I've been with the Massachusetts legislature for 10 years. I've been involved in politics for 15 years. Come on. They didn't play nice. Mm -hmm. And your system in higher education is uh, troubling. 
the uh, rules, regulations, constraints, testing in the education system is distressing. It's distressing. So I am very jazzed about learning. And one of the things I think about is in this extraordinary time, during the time of the pandemics, Mm -hmm. plural, more than plural, multiple, it is a different time in the world. Every time I hear somebody say, oh, we're going to get back to normal, it's like, are you serious? And then I hear people saying, well, let's get back to a new normal. Mm-hmm. Nah, we're going to get back to the next normal, the next normal. And within that next normal, there are possibilities that I am just overwhelmed by the opportunity to learn and to learn outside of the traditional educational structure is tremendous. So if what you care about is learning, the world is your oyster. If what you care about is education, go carefully. So is real learning, and you can define that any way you want, Marge, is that possible in formal learning settings? Because, you know, some people go, it, it, I need to get that master's. I need to get that PhD. Or I, I feel like I needed to be able to get to the playgrounds where I want to play. So is real learning possible there? And what might that look like in those settings? Of course, it's, it's possible. My major professor was uh, Chris Argerus, who was an icon in organizational development. And when I was at the university, uh, Chris would say, Chris believes in directly observable data. And he would say to a student who would get up and say, well, you need to understand the black experience or you need to understand a woman's experience. He'd say, no, I don't. No, I don't. If you cannot bring me directly observable data, I don't have to listen to you at all. People walked out, they flocked out. And what I said in my head was, okay, I'll play your silly game. Now, there are, there are games to play. Games have rules. You want to play in the game? You have to play by the rules. I was thinking when we started our conversation, one thing that I have always done is gone on time and under budget. <laughs> and I was, and it, it's, you know, the things that make you who you are. And when you ask the question about what changes, what doesn't change, there's been an interesting opening up in this time. People have used the word blurs day, that things are kind of blurred, but it's beyond that. It's a com- It's under a time of such dramatic, um, dramatic stress. People are saying, what do I need to do now? What can't I do now? There's been a fluidity around commitment that's not the way I roll. But it's also making me think, is doing this going to be giving energy, having positive benefit? Or is this something I check off that I said I'd do it? Yeah. You just went to a question that was formulating in my mind. And I'd love for you to try to answer from two perspectives, which is, how does Marge at 83 decide what games she's willing to play and what games she's not willing to play. And contrast that with 
younger Marge, maybe in her 30s and 40s, at that time in your life, how did you decide what games you were willing to play and what games you were not willing to play? Wow, that's a big one. Well, I'll start with now. I want to do things that give me energy, and I don't want to do things that deplete energy. Yes. I want to do things that I'm good at, and with certain exceptions, I don't want to do things I'm not good at. Mm-hmm. I remember, but I, I often take a dare. I remember a very good friend of mine who understood my learning differences bet me I couldn't do a Sudoku. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it took me almost an hour. It was yeah. horrible. It was horrible. He paid me the $100. So you want to know about when I was younger? Yeah. Because of the learning differences, I didn't have boundaries to supposed to. I had what we think might have been the first feminist television show in the country. And it was a live show on that good. It was a PBS show, Talking Heads, etc. And my mother said, how can you do that? What happens if you can't think of something to say? And I said, you know what? Maybe I'll suck my thumb and I can live with X number of people, several thousand people watching me suck my thumb, big honking deal. So I do think that the standard, can you live with the consequence is yeah. a pretty good one. It's a pretty good one. But because my experience was, were so non-traditional, I just figured I'd try it and Almost all of the time, it worked out just fine. And that is partially because I did say, I'll play your silly game. Yes, I did things that I thought were unnecessary or maybe even foolish, but I did them. Yeah. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. Are there so many wonderful dots you just connected for me with that answer? That was cool. You, you mentioned earlier, and I'm, I'm curious, and our, our audience might be as well, that you spent 10 or 15 years in, in government in Massachusetts. Similarly, if you had to think of something that brought you joy or energy from that time, what was it? And if there's some, I hope there's something that did. <laughs> and, and, if, and if there are things that didn't, I'm curious about that as well. Well, first of all, during the time I was active in politics, it was a quest. It's not, in certain ways, quite similar to what's going on right now. Mm-hmm. I believe the Vietnam War was wrong. Uh, I worked for Eugene McCarthy, who uh, had that belief set. I met many, many famous people and got to work with a lot of interesting people because of politics and because of the belief, because of yeah. the belief system. Uh, it's very exciting to do something 
that you're passionate about. Mm-hmm. What's better? What could be better? I agree. Yeah. One of the things I know you, Marge, are passionate about is a field called appreciative inquiry. Mm-hmm. You are uh, considered a thought leader in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, before we go deeper into it, uh, for our listeners who don't know what appreciative inquiry is, could you give us a little introduction to appreciative inquiry? Why don't we just take the two words? The first is appreciate. Appreciate would be to value. Appreciate would be in the financial sense to grow. And appreciation for me has always included appreciation of the difficult or challenging Mm -hmm. because resilience only comes if we're challenged. So we, I suspect anybody who's listening to this can say, yeah, that was lousy, but boy, I sure learned something. And it's that ability to learn from and, and appreciate. I didn't like it, but I'm different today because of it. So that's what appreciative means. And inquiry means asking questions to yeah. find out, to be curious. But I want to say something about inquiry, which has taken me a long time. And that is to be sensitive to people who are not curious. Mm-hmm. Because questions can feel like assault. Yeah. And we've all had the experience of feeling assaulted by a question. Uh, the old one was, "Are you? do you still beat your wife? Was the was sort of the classic of, it's an unanswerable question. You watch um, uh, news conferences now. With unan- those questions can't be answered. So the, the inquiry is, I, maybe we should call it appreciative invitation. Mm-hmm. Because when it's an invitation, you can say no, thank you. Yeah, I I had to chuckle as you were talking because I'm the notion that not everybody, you know, wants to inquire is really interesting. I'm in the role right now of asking you questions. You're my guest, and some questions you might go, "Gosh, I'm glad he asked that." And some of you might go, I wish you would get the heck out of that one because I have other things I want to talk about. I mean, we know each other, so I, I know that's not the dance between you and me, but I'm, I'm relating it to the experience of being questioned because questioning, no matter how well-intentioned, can be a way of controlling a conversation, right? And it goes into control dynamics and all of that stuff. Any I like thoughts on that? Well, yeah, because I think that there is a dance of collaboration and co-construction. Mm-hmm. Now, if you always want to lead and you want me to follow, <laughs> I don't know whether I want to dance that dance. But the idea of playing off of one another's energy, there's not a question that I mind because there's always going to be something interesting. Mm-hmm. Even if even if my I, – I can't even think of – I can't think of questions. I can't. You know what else? I, I I suspect it also has to do with emotional state. Yeah. And relationship to the questioner. 
Yeah, yeah. Imagine. Okay, let's go back to the news conference. Do you really want to hurt me? Yes, I do. I'm a reporter, and I want to hurt you. Mm-hmm. So that's a different response to a question. But another sense of a question that's unexpected. It's walking down a road you never walked down before. Well, I never. Uh, t-shirt of my life. I never thought of it that way. Wow. I think once we get to the place, this is sort of subtext that I hear from you, let me test it, where we're fine with being asked any question. That's a beautiful place, especially when we know that we can always say, no, I don't want to answer that question if we don't want to. But the question can open a door to something that we discover, the unknown, and all of those things. Am I hearing you correctly as I articulate? Absolutely. Uh, One other thing that I would add to that is it's not a no, it's a no thank you. And uh, to be right now in a space that is more gentle. Yeah. uh, This is such a time of... uh, Anger and stress and fatigue. Uh, you know, come on, people now, smile at your brother. Let's be nice to one another. Couldn't hurt. So, Marge, you and I had an accidental meeting on a cruise ship. We did. Uh, and I, what interests me about that story is just because you were definitely at the age of 76 when I met you. So, you were in what we would call the fourth act. And you were, uh, you had a certain kind of life, but you were busily engaged in work and passions and interests. And you still are at 83 in some ways that are similar, some are different. So I, I'd love to, because the name of the podcast, Fourth Act, look at this stage of your life. Can we start by, I'm going to invite you to tell the story of how we've met. <laughs> you care to do that because it's, we, we sort of met cute. Are you willing to tell that story? Of course. And you'll correct me if I forget something. We were on a short cruise from Florida. Yes. On a big cruise ship. Now, we're sailboat people. So the whole thing with the cruise was, frankly, a little bit um, weird. Just weird. Why are all these people doing this? Why are they just like, I don't know. I don't get it. But my husband was in a wheelchair. He's 88 now, and he was having some mobility issues. And so we were to get off of the cruise ship at a particular time. We sat with a few other people. And the two people that I remember best were, first of all, the woman who was on the phone and saying, you don't seem to understand. I'm a gold, silver, platinum, (laughs) diamond person. And I want to get, and okay, fine. And then there were two, uh, there were three people, uh, two women and a man in a wheelchair. And the man was, I forget what he was complaining about. And one of the women whipped around and said, if you don't stop complaining, we're going to go on another cruise because it's cheaper than the nursing home. (laughs) And I did not want to sit there. I wasn't amused. It was like, I've been on this cruise and with the thing, it's enough already. So I walked over to you and you were sitting with your with my partner yeah. with your colleague whose name I've now forgotten. And Flash. I like, yeah, Flash, Flash. 
you were sitting with Flash and you were on the, maybe you were on your cell phone or something. And I walked over to you guys and I said, is this the no complaint zone? Yes. And it was, and it was. And then we found out we had things in common and uh, we all liked one another and we went out to dinner and you came over to the house and so on and so forth. And the lesson from that is something else that I'm not doing is sometimes something wouldn't feel right. And I would just go forward. Give me some men who are so hearted men, you know, March forward. You've got to do it. That's my mission. That's what I said I would do. I'm much more interested in what things feel like energetically. Yeah. Uh, the Beach Boys had a, the song Good, Vi- Good Vibrations. Mm-hmm. If you feel, I feel good vibrations with somebody, I'm ready to march. If the vibrational feel feels like it's a giant sucking sound of your energy, I don't want to be there. Yeah. If I have a choice, I'm not going to. Is this the no complaint zone is a wonderful opening line. But choosing to live in the no complaint zone is also a wonderful way of being and creating or co-creating our existence, isn't it? To use the language we've already used before. I have a distinct memory of a conversation that you and I had where you introduced a word to me that I had not heard before, before, and the word is plurk. And you talked about how much you love plurking. And I've grown to love the word myself. So can I entice you to talk a little bit about the value of plurking at any stage in our lives? Absolutely. I first thought about this. Oh, I love being able to say this in Barcelona, because (laughs) when I was in Barcelona, I was working with someone who explained to me that there is a word in Catalan that does not exist in English. And that is Apollo and Dionysus together. So the play and the work. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that that really hits me. And when I thought about it, first of all, I thought, well, I'm not going to call it plorking because that sounds like your feet are in the mud, sort of. But plorking is kind of an up. And the backstory on this is that I, I mentioned I, I had a television show of my own, but then I became <laughs> the Friday commentator for a five-day-a-week TV show on, I think on the CBS affiliate, scratch that. It may have been the NBC affiliate. I don't remember. But what I do remember is I was asked to debate Phyllis Schlafly. Phyllis Schlafly is the, uh, was the head of the Eagle Forum. And I would say pretty much single-handedly managed to defeat the Equal Rights Amendment. Seriously. So I was fairly freaked about this experience. And in order to show my mommy chops, I brought then seven-year-old Andy Schiller with me. Uh, And he sat there and afterwards he met Mrs. Schlafly. And she asked him about his daddy. And Andy said, well, daddy work works and mommy play works. Oh, nice. Oh, yeah. Oh, nice. Oh, my gosh. 
And as with many experiences in life, and this is something that I have learned, there is a deeper meaning. And once you've had a chance to step back from it, you understand something you didn't understand after that first reaction. My husband hated his job. He hated the experience. He hated going to work. I loved my job. I loved going to work. I was bubbly and happy and so on and so forth. So plurk is when there is an energetic play in the work, when there's a lightness in the work, when there is an OK acceptance in the work. It is not a lockstep march. It is not just a transaction. There is something when you plurk that is transformational. Can anybody plurk in any circumstance? Because I'm hearing, as you're talking, that plurking is a choice, or are there just some jobs or some circumstances where the answer is get the hell out of there so you can plurk somewhere else? To reflections. The first is I do believe in, okay, I'll play your silly game. Mm -hmm. I do believe that there are, are things that will still exist in systems yeah. that uh, require you to do things that uh, may strike you as silly or foolish or a waste of time, but that's what you do. Uh, on the other hand, one of uh, I'll come back to this because it's so big to me. If I am in a place or in a relationship or in a situation where there's this giant sucking sound of energy and nothing's yeah. coming back, I don't belong there. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad place. Yeah. It it's a bad place for me. Yeah. Beautiful. Now, this is called the My Fourth Act podcast. And you are the oldest guest I've had on the podcast so far, Marge Schiller. And I, I love talking with you because when I met you, you were 76 and in my mind, in your fourth act. And you asked me this provocative question. Well, when does the fourth act end? And when are we in our fifth act? And I want to throw it back at you. Like, how, how do you make sense of that for yourself? Well, first of all, because I know you are seeped in theater and I am a lover of theater. I thought about it not as a fifth act, but as a coda, as what, something that brings things together at the end. Mm -hmm. And as it is my nature, I deconstructed the word uh, C-O-D-A. Mm -hmm. And this, this is a, a, a refresh of some of thing, the things I've said before, but it's really where I want to leave the conversation because this is important to me. Uh, anything that I think about, there's a caveat. Right now, there is a wonderful opportunity that I would love, I would love to take advantage of. And I can't do it right now because my husband needs too much care. Yeah. And so there's a caveat. What is the, it, it, it's sort of like, it's sort of like when you go and look at the cherries in the supermarket and when they're $7.95 a pound you say I don't like cherries that much but at $4.95 or $3.95 I want those cherries so what's what's the cost um, the second uh, so that's the C then 
O is opportunities, and they look different now. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the, I see things as opportunities that never struck me as opportunities before, and then I see opportunities that I would have been ecstatic about in my fourth act that mm-hmm. I'm no longer. Uh, I don't see them as opportunity. Yeah. I see them as opportunities to lay aside. That doesn't mean I don't want to be a player. Yeah. But it means that uh, the nature of the opportunity has changed. Um, because uh, if D is uh, discerning, everything now is about what's in the background and what's in the foreground. Mm-hmm. My big learning is who said the body was going to be in charge? <laughs> who, who, who said that who made that one up <laughs> i always thought my head was in charge and then i understood my heart but not only is the body in charge it turns out the body is very smart mm-hmm. the body is very very smart and i did not understand that the body was very smart so i would say that one of the things in the coda of this play is listening to my body and saying, oh, you're tired. You know what you could do? You could sit down for 20 minutes. You could take a nap. What a concept. I never took a nap in my life. Uh, So that's COD, but the A is the most important one. And that is about authenticity. Mm -hmm. I cannot say enough for get real, be real, particularly in this extraordinary time that we're living in right now, probably the most interesting time for re-examining. So much has gone on during the time of COVID and the multiple pandemics. I believe that I do not feel defined by this time And I hope you don't feel that way either. But I do hope that the pandemics, the multiple pandemics, are a time where we can redefine ourselves. So in Lakota, you're playing Let's Redefine. I love that you used Coda as a, if you will, framework for your current play of life. But everything you said is relevant for every stage of life. And, and maybe part of it is that where you are right now, you know, it's informed by a wisdom that says, stop already and pay attention. And if you, based on what you know, if you were to give wisdom, guidance, suggestion to other folks who are in maybe their 70s or 80s and uh, want to explore or want to do whatever, what, what suggestions might you have for them? Come on over, let's have a glass of wine and we'll talk about it. I don't know. I can't imagine uh, giving advice. No, I have, I have no advice except, you know, okay, I do have one piece of advice. Uh, I've never had therapy and therapy is a very good thing. And I was trying to figure out why I've never done therapy. And the reason I've never done therapy is I have friends that I talk to on a regular basis all the time, 
all the time. Once a week is Deb. Uh, she's Mondays at eight. La Barbara is 7 a.m. on Tuesdays. Marsha mm-hmm. is as needed. And these are hour-long conversations that some might call co-consulting. I like to call them friendship. Yeah. Friendship with people that whose opinions you value and where it is a, a relationship of equals. What a beautiful way to end our conversation on the note of friendship, since I consider you a friend. Thank you so much for the gift of your time and the conversation, Marge. Thank you, Akeem. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.